kids are always welcome at everything we do here. If there's a reason for them not to be, we'll let you know ahead of time. But uh, uh, we're not in Song of Solomon today, so you should be safe. Uh, a couple of years ago, I uh, worked, uh, volunteered with a group called Life International. Life International went around the globe teaching pastors and church leaders the sanctity of human life. And in the process of some of these trainings, uh, we would go into some really challenging places uh, deep into Indonesia and into uh, uh, all over Asia, India, uh, South America, and Guyana, and then uh, Uganda. And I was in Uganda years ago uh, in this village. And what's really interesting about what happens in other parts of the world is that when they find out that there are American pastors coming to teach, everybody drops everything and they send all their church leaders and pastors to go and, and see this. It's really, it's really honoring, but it's really overwhelming sometimes too because the hospitality is unreal. Um, uh, of how these people do this. And so we were in this little village uh, right off of Lake Victoria there, and, and it was about, the, the room was maybe, uh, if it was half the size of this room, it was, it was amazing. And there's, I don't know, 250, 300 people probably in this room. The floors were dirt. This was their chapel. This is where they worshiped. And here we were presenting to them the sanctity of human life and talking to them about what the scripture says about who God says you are and, and, and God's design for the family and really talking to them about uh, why we value life in the womb and life outside of the womb, and then even just sexual integrity. Uh, Africa being the dark continent, as it's often called, has this terrible problem with HIV and AIDS. And so having some education that is also very biblically based. And so this was like six days worth of training um, all day long. And it was amazing because sometimes people would get off work, sometimes they would come, and then at night we would have a, a worship time and a time for chapel, and it was just really overwhelming. And, and I remember that night, um, it was my opportunity to share with the group and very few things disrupt me to a point on a Sunday morning or, or in, a, uh, in, a, in a setting like this than something I've never seen before. And at the very beginning of, of the service, this lady comes down the middle of this uneven dirt, red dirt uh, floor of this chapel, and she has flip-flops on her hands, and she's dragging her feet as she's walking down to the very front to sit down on the front row. That was pretty remarkable for me. What was even more remarkable is when two of the elders got up and picked her up and set her comfortably into a seat, making someone else move out of the way. I thought that was awesome. I just thought that was cool. But that's not what really got me. It's when the ladies on the other side were nursing this one child, and the child kept getting passed from woman to woman to woman. And i got to tell you, that messed with me a lot. I'm not unaccustomed to that, but I was unaccustomed to watching this child move, and I'm going, oh, man, in the States right now, my nurse wife is freaking out. Um, but I bet that kid will survive everything because the immune system is probably great, right? But I'm watching these beautiful African people worshiping in this dirty, hot, hot place, rusted tin roof, the whole works. Everything you ever want to think about missions, it was there, right? Sewer on the outside when the wind blew just right, you get a good smell of humanity right you know and i asked him that that morning the same question i want to ask you this morning i asked him that morning is do you know what the image of god looks like and 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 they would translate so i don't have to translate this morning they would translate in the in the swahili and they, they do you know what the image of god looks like and i said here's the good news i do in fact i have a picture of god do you want to see what he looks like today and of course all the people are looking at me like okay this heretic's about to get stoned Right, bad things are going to happen. And then everybody, all the all the white people that were with me over here, going, I don't know this guy. I met him at the airport. Are we going to make it out of here safe? You start plotting your exit strategy when the crazy gets up and starts speaking, right? Particularly if you're American. And so I, I had a, my iPad with me at the time, and I just walked around the crowd. I did the same thing I want to do with you this morning. Do you know what the image of God looks like? And I began to walk around like this, and I began to show them 
that this is what the image of God looks like. Y'all are all subdued. I mean, just like, like quiet. The other half of the room's not sure what image is on here right now, okay? Uh, it's not them. And I started to do this, and I walked around, and I showed them what the image of God really looks like. That when God looks at his creation, and he looks at his humanity, what he sees is this. And I'm telling you, it took another 20 minutes to calm everybody down. And it wasn't because it was just laughter, and it was funny. It was celebration. It was the reality that in this impoverished place, in this challenging place, in this country with the youngest population in the entire world, that someone had walked up to them and they said, do you know what? You are the image bearer of God, and because you're the image bearer of God, you are the most special and the pinnacle of all creation. And you are loved by your creator. And your creator that designed you when he said, let us make man in our own image, in the book of Genesis, he made you exactly like you are. And the weirdest thing is, as different as we may look, we all bear the image of God. Friends, this morning, I just want to tell you, if you've never heard this or never embraced this fully, you are the image bearers of God, and you are a masterpiece. You are a masterpiece, and you were in the womb as God put you together. You are a masterpiece now. And in a day, particularly in our culture, where body dysmorphia and all these other concepts of what beauty really is and what attractiveness really is, let me tell you something. What beauty and attractiveness really is, is the acceptance that I bear the image of God. That he made me not just special, but he made me. And because I am his creation, he can do whatever he wants with me. Not only am I his creation, I am the pinnacle of his creation. It does not get any better than me. Say that with me. It does not get any better than me. I didn't hear that very well. Say that again. You realize that the hardest thing that you can do is to get someone talking about themselves. The second hardest thing is to get them to shut up once they start. Sometimes we're very self-deprecating. I use that technique a lot in all kinds of public speaking, including preaching, because it draws us into this reality of this humanity. It draws us into this understanding that, that, that we, can, we can connect. It's a, it's a common ground, if you will, for all of us to try to get to a place where we lower ourselves. But I want to tell you something. We have gotten to such a, a, an embracing culture that we lose ourselves away from the image of our creator that sometimes we don't even recognize him when he's doing great work in us. You are magnificent. You are beautiful from the inside out. You are exactly as God created you and made you. Would you like to lose a few pounds or have a couple of wrinkles go away or some gray? Sure, who wouldn't? But you know what? That's a product of the fall, friends. That's just the world we live in. And that's the enemy whispering in our ear, you're not good enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not loved. And it's a lie. And it's a lie. We've been going through this series the last couple of weeks. We're going to continue this off and on throughout the rest of the year through this book called Believe. And this week we're in chapter 7 of Believe. Uh, I invite you to pick one of these things up back there in the back. They're five bucks. If you don't have five bucks, just steal it. It's a church. God will forgive you. Uh, Read along with us. The first 10 chapters basically are just the foundational truths of what we believe. Um, the next couple of ones are how we think and then how God is, is forming us. What are we becoming like? And so this morning we find ourselves in the second chapter of this book, and there's a key ideal in this chapter. And that key ideal is simply this. I believe, I believe that all people are loved by God and need Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's right here. Uh, put, put that up there for me. I believe that all people are loved by God and need Jesus Christ as their Savior. Would you read that out loud? I know this is weird. We don't normally do this. Read that out loud. I believe. Uh, 
is so easy to say, but I got to be honest, fleshing it out sometimes is really hard because there are some folks I just don't like. They're not good people. They're mean to me. They're better than me. I'm intimidated by them. They're ugly on all kinds of forms. I mean, come on, I'm being honest here this morning. But you know what? If I believe this statement to be true, then it ought to dictate the way that I act towards others and how I treat them. You know, we have the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them to do unto you, or for some it's do unto them before they get a chance to do it to you. We manipulate all kinds of things, right? Even the, the kindness campaign that goes on in this school, which, by the way, is, is absolutely amazing. It teaches people to be kind to one another. In, in our great city of Katy, there are 95 spoken languages inside of our school district because the diversity here is absolutely amazing that every little part of the mosaic picture of God's creation somehow found its way to Katy. Isn't that amazing? I just wish it would somehow find its way to, to, to our church because I'm telling you something, I have worshipped before, but it's not been in America, just being honest with you. It's been in a little dirt hut in the middle of Uganda. It's been in this, this crazy little makeshift chapel in India where nations of, of all kinds of folks have gone to this lady named Mother Teresa's house to serve others because she understood what it was to look at the depravity of humanity and see the face of Jesus Christ in the death and the dying in this terrible, awful place. She got it. She understood that statement. She believed that all people needed Jesus Christ and they were loved by him. It's one thing to believe, it's one thing to read it out loud, it's another thing to actually act that way. And friends, I think we're all challenged by that at some point. I think we're all challenged by that. I think right now in our political culture of this world, we are seeing a lot of division based upon the differences of how we look, act, think, speak, and live. And do you know the one person, it's so funny, the one person who actually is going to create a greater divide in that than anybody else is Jesus Christ. That guy knew how to divide a room. That guy knew how to walk in and upset absolutely everybody and pull everybody back into the truth. If nothing else, he was a uniter because everybody hated him at one point. But at the foot of the cross, we all stand on common ground in need of salvation, each and every one of us. And Jesus is the only answer for that. John 3.16, something we preached last week, the very familiar verse, it says, For God so loved the world... Remember that word world, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. I want to focus on that word world for just one moment. If you're not Greek scholars, you can still stay in church, but we want to have a tutorial afterwards because I'm not either. But, but I want you to see that this, this ideal of humanity follows this word, this, this, world, this word world. And in the Greek, it actually used the word cosmos, which is a K-O-S-M-O-S. And the ideal of that, that word uh, actually expands into the, the, the unlovable multitude. All right, so God so loved the unlovable multitude, the ungodly multitude. God so loved all these masses of people who hated him and turned their back on him that he gave them this gift of salvation only through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to remember that because essentially that's humanity. We're this ungodly, unruly, almost unlovable multitude. Have you ever felt unloved or unlovable? Have you ever done something in such a way that you, that you said, and you maybe have said this before, you might be even saying it this morning, perhaps, you know, if God only knew half of, of all that I did, he, he just wouldn't love me. You know, the scariest thing is he knows all that you did, all that you're thinking about doing, and all that you will do, and he loves you anyway. And so through Jesus, he made this, this ungodly multitude into this new creation. In the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, 
Jesus never refers to anyone as sinners. He refers to them as saints. There is a transformation. There is a change that is there. But everybody else makes it a good point to call upon the sinners, to point out those who are in violation of the rules as they see them. To see those outside of the norm, they would put this big blanket moniker of sinner upon them. And so a sinner was anybody not like us. It really got to be that simple. Anyone not like us. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I would love for you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. It's in the New Testament. It's a little past two-thirds in your Bible, chapter 7. Luke is an amazing book. It's actually written more chronologically than any other book in the New Testament with the exception of Acts. And so if you ever sat down and read the book of Luke, you would see that this, this good doctor, Luke, writes in great terms, and he does so chronologically. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there's one back there. Take it when you go, uh, or we're going to put it up on the screen. But in this passage in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 43, we see this story of these Pharisees, these religious leaders, these political acolytes, these, these people who are better than everybody else and made sure everybody knew it. And, and they're trying to trap Jesus into blasphemy, into saying things about himself that they don't believe is true. And they want to discredit him and they want to use him to discredit himself so they can go ahead and take care of him and they can contain the power that they have because apparently they have all the answers and they don't want anybody else to have it except to get it from them. And so in Luke chapter 7, one of these Pharisees, these rich, really smart guys, invites Jesus to come and have dinner with them. And so we see this story in Luke 7, verse 36 to 43. It says this. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair kissed them and poured perfume on them when the pharisee had invited him saw this he said catch this he said to himself if this man were a prophet he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is but she is a sinner jesus answered him isn't that great he said this to himself and jesus answered him that ought to make you think about your thought life a little bit right (laughs) i'm thinking right now Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. He said, tell me, teacher. He said, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. In this passage of scripture, we see a couple of very interesting things. First of all, Jesus understanding the thoughts of someone and responding to those thoughts vocally. If you don't think Jesus can't do that, let me just encourage you, read the Bible and let that speak to you because this is God's authoritative word is speaking into every aspect of your life. There's nothing in your life that is not covered by this scripture. And if you think that that's the case, then I'm just going to invite you to continue to read the scripture because he'll eventually get there. He will talk into your life and has already spoken into his life, and truth is always truth. It was truth, is truth, and will be truth, and that's how we know it to be true. And so he's talking to this Pharisee, this really smart, rich guy, and he's trying to to, to get him to understand something. And this Pharisee, all he can do is see the difference in himself, in this Jesus, and this sinful woman, most likely a prostitute, as we see in other contexts throughout the Scripture. Now, I always find that remarkable because I'm a little bit of a cynic, if you haven't noticed this already, but I'm just trying to figure out how is this Pharisee knows what she does for a living? Maybe that's just me. 
But I think Jesus actually hit the nail on the head. Because when he heard his thoughts, he responded to him vocally. That should have shut him up right there. It should have been enough just for him to go, Ooh, man, stay puff marshmallow man, stay puff marshmallow man. Some of you will get that. Some of you are way too young. That should have been enough to stop this. But let me tell you something. There are three things that I particularly see in this passage of Scripture here. And it's simply this, is that, that how does God see us? When he looks at us, how does he see us? And those three things in this, this simple passage of Scripture right here says basically this, God sees us all, okay? Now let that soak in for just a minute. He sees us all. There is not any one of us that can hide from him no matter where we are. We see that in the book of Jonah, wonderful beginning to that, to that, that book there where it says that Jonah got on a ship uh, for Tarsus outside of the presence of God. Good luck with that. I hope he finds that place and tells me how to get there because I've been looking for a place outside of the presence of God because outside of the presence of God, I can just sin like crazy and God won't know it. But friends, here's the scariest part. There is but one place that will be outside of the presence of God and it's a real place called hell and people are gonna go there. And that is not God's plan. It is not his design, but it is his justice. It is his righteousness. It is his authority. It is his loving kindness to say, I must deal with sin. And for some people who will not receive me, they will be cast out. And the scariest part of a real place called hell is not the fire and the brimstone and the gnashing of teeth and the punishment and everything else. It will be the absence of the presence of a holy God. It is the same type of absence that Adam and Eve unfortunately had to live through when they were cast away from God to not be in his full presence forever. That man has been fighting their way back to be in the full presence of God because God tells us that the dwelling place for God is in the hearts of men and he desires to be with us always, but he must be with us as we are purified and in right relationship with him. And the only way that an ungodly multitude is going to be able to do that is through the gift of this person, Jesus Christ. And so first and foremost, let me just tell you, nobody's off the hook. God sees us all. All of us. None are righteous. No, not one. This Pharisee, this smart guy, this rich guy, this, this influencer, he was missing that point that if God sees this sinful woman over here, he also sees your sinful heart and he even spoke to your own thoughts and you didn't get it. You didn't get it. The second thing we see up there is that, that God sees all of us. Well, now that's a little bit different, isn't it? God sees all of us. You mean that there's nothing that I can hide from God? There's not times where I can be on this spiritual mountain and God just excuses a couple of other sins because I, I had this experience a while back? No, there's not. That's not a righteous life. Th those are acts of sinfulness that God is trying to help us to work out with fear and trembling. As Paul says, he's trying to help us to work out our salvation to be more like this Jesus who is in a process of making us more like him. And the only way he can do that is he's got to see every bit of us. All the things we try to hide, all the things we try to keep secret, all the things we don't want everybody else of the ungodly multitudes to know about, this, this world that God loves so much. He's trying to, he's, if we try to hide those things, we're trying to keep those things away from God. And I got news for you. He's not going to be able to take that from us and fix it if we don't let him. It's not a power thing with him. He has all the power and authority to do that. It's a choice for you. It's a decision that you make. It is a desire to love the world and its sinful behaviors and its habits and all the hedonism and all that stuff out there that the ungodly multitude have embraced. It's a desire to hold on to those things because God sees all of us and not give it all over to him. We live very much in a shame-filled culture these days where we call people out in a, a moment's notice, more so than any other time in history. 
I don't think they had Facebook back during this time. I'm pretty sure they didn't. But, you know, then again, their culture was not near as great as ours, right? It's, it doesn't matter what your technology is or anything else. Let me tell you something, friends. Whenever you are busy calling the sin out in somebody else's life, you're missing the sins that, that are in your life. And the reason why you're missing that is because you've not allowed God to take control over those things because maybe it's your pride, maybe it's your arrogance, and you just said, no, 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 God, I got this. I went to church last week. I'm good. Box check. That was this Pharisee's problem. He had a title, and he was entitled. He had this authority, but he had absolutely no submission to the people by which he was trying to serve. Here's this woman. We don't even know her name, and she disrupted this society. We didn't even know what her real sins were, but everybody else did. What we do know is this, is that she brought to Jesus this, this jar of perfume that was probably very expensive, and she anointed his feet, and she cleaned his feet, and she washed them with her tears and dried them with her hair. There is nothing more humiliating than sinking to that level and washing someone else's feet. In that day in culture, it was always customary when a guest came into your home because they wore sandals and they walked in dirt all the time. It was always customary that you would clean their feet because when they talked about Jesus reclining at the table and the lady stood behind him, he leaned against the table like this and his feet were back here behind him and everybody's feet were near one another. And so while they're eating and they're working with one another, everybody's feet. Yeah, some of y'all got some weird faces right now because feet are just nasty, right? When, when verse... 44 and on goes on jesus even remarks to him you didn't even bother to wash my feet when i walked into your house and look at this woman she's done so with the tears and her eyes and cleaned them with her hair and she has anointed my feet with perfume and you call her a sinner you call her less than you call her unworthy and you question the son of god if he only knew what kind of woman she was let me tell you something friends God knew what kind of woman she was. God knows what kind of man and woman you are. And God sees your value and your worth. He doesn't see your mistakes. In fact, he wants to forget those things. But in order to forget those sins charged against you, you must receive Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, believe that he is the Son of God, laid his life down willingly, picked it back up three days later, conquered death, which no one else can do for you. And God says, I will blot those things out. I will wash those things out. And your sins will be washed away with the blood of the Lamb the spotless, perfect blood of the Lamb. This Pharisee, this rich guy, this smart guy, he had every opportunity to know these things. He knew the Old Testament as it would be, and yet he couldn't make the connection of this one who was reading his thoughts and speaking into his heart, into his life and his reality, and he was missing it because all he saw was the devaluation of this woman, this sinful woman, who was, for whatever reason, in his home, anointing Jesus, showing him more love, respect, care, humanity showing more humility than this guy ever did you ever judge somebody by how they look by what they wear what their job is how old they are the color of their skin you ever look at somebody and finish the narrative in your mind about who they really are how they got to that place our friend Tina Hatcher, who is the director of Hope Impacts, a ministry that we've supported for the last six years here, does a, a homeless ministry here in Katy. And, and Tina and I have had multiple conversations over the year, and she said to me more than one time, she goes, you know, John, every single person in the United States right now is one disaster away from homelessness. Uh, a study 
pre-COVID study said that, that, that less than, than 10% of Americans have $1,000 in their bank account right now. They're just one disaster away from being homeless, from losing everything that they have and they fought for. Well, let me tell you something. Once you have been bought and paid for by Jesus Christ, there is not anybody can take you out of his hand. And it doesn't matter how much money you do or don't have or how ugly you are or how attractive you are or how nice your house is or is not or how bad your kids are. That may matter. Keep on to that later. It doesn't matter. God sees your value and your worth, and, and it's high time that we start building back up humanity and creation and understanding that the image bearers of God, the pinnacle of his creation, is us, each and every one of us. And in doing so, how we treat ourselves and how we treat others matters because Christ came to the cross regardless of you and how you look and what you eat and where you live. All those things he did so anyway. And so now I must ask you this simple question, not only does, how, does, how does God see us, but how do we see others? How do we see others? I mean, if we accept that we are the pinnacle of creation, the image bearers of God, then particularly those of us who have professed this Jesus Christ and have received this salvation through grace by him, how then do we see others? How do we treat one another outside of this place in particular? How do we treat others who are different than us for whatever reason? How do we do so? And how can we see others like God sees them? The Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament, and he wrote letters back to these churches. And, and many times he wrote these letters because he was in prison for professing Jesus Christ, the Savior of all mankind. And he would be put into prison, and he actually appealed to Rome. And so now he finds himself usually uh, locked up to a guard, and he's uh, under house arrest. And he's writing these letters back to these churches of those who have accepted this Jesus Christ and this following of the way. And there's one simple little book. It's, it's, it's one page. I think there's like... 34 verses in the whole thing. It's the book of Philemon. And Philemon was this uh, rich slave owner. Now, not slaves like we might think today, but slaves were different back then. But he owned these slaves. But he was also a believer. And he believed in Jesus Christ. And there was a slave that worked for him by the name of Onesimus. And Onesimus ran away from Philemon. And he found himself actually next to Paul. And in the process of also being arrested, he's next to Paul. And Paul tells him about this Jesus. And Onesimus puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And Paul does something that is absolutely amazing. He says, now listen, Onesimus, I want you to go back to your master, Philemon. Now under Roman law, Philemon had the right to kill him because he ran away from him. And so he sends him back to him. And in doing so, he writes this letter to him in Philemon, verses 8 through 11. Paul writes this, he says, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you, Philemon, to do what you ought to do, Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also prisoner of Jesus Christ, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, listen to this, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and to me. We live in such a transactional society that our relationships often are based upon what someone can do for me or what I can do for them. And so in the process of that, we actually take someone's value and their worth down to what it is they can do for me or I can do for them and how we can come to an even exchange because no one wants to get taken advantage of. And in the process of this, this measuring of usefulness, we actually also find people useless. And in finding them useless, we see no value in them. We don't see them as God sees them, and we don't see them as God would look upon us because prior to us coming to a faith in Jesus, we really weren't of much value, particularly to the kingdom of God. 
And so as Paul writes to Philemon, he says, I will not, I will not compel you to take him back, but I will ask you on the basis of love if you will bring this person back into your house. And after all, I want you to know that prior to his conversion, he was not useful, but now he's become more useful to me even than you have. You rich, aristocratic slave owner, this runaway slave is now more useful to me than you are. Now, if they weren't friends, I would imagine Philemon probably would have got his feelings hurt about that. If he didn't know Paul and loved Paul, because Paul will actually remind him later on, now listen, I'm still not trying to compel you, but I do want to remind you that you even owe me your very self. That the only reason you're a believer is because I came to your house and shared with you the goodness of Jesus Christ. Throughout all that, what Paul is trying to say is that love actually allows us to open our eyes to see the value and worth of a human being in God's eyes, to see them the way that we are. And it's not until we are useful for God's kingdom that we actually see someone's value and see what God sees. It's not anything to do with them. It has nothing to do with anybody else. It has everything to do with us. When we are in right standing, walking with God, doing what he wants us to do, when we are useful for God's kingdom, there's something happens to us when we begin to stop seeing people for all their differences, both believer and non-believer, and we look at them and see the image bearers of God and say, you know what, I want to be useful for God's kingdom, and I want to see that person the way God sees them. I don't want to look down upon them because they're poor, or because they're young, or because they're foolish, or because they're a different color, or they're different education. I, don't want to, I want to see them as worthy of the cross of Jesus Christ. And the only way I'm going to do that is get myself into a practice to where I'm working in God's kingdom and I'm living according to my relationship with him and I'm also working out my salvation through acts of service, through acts of caring, through acts of kindness, through ministry, that I am every day walking more and more like Jesus to be more like Jesus. In the process of that, I'm getting his eyes and I'm getting to see others the way Jesus saw them. All the way up the hill to Calvary, Jesus was looking at the face of humanity, the, the ungodly multitudes, and he says, I will still go to this cross for them. I will still make this happen. I have eyes for them. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Man, I had a conversation this past week with someone about baptism, and I said, listen, the thing about baptism is simply this. We baptize by immersion in this church because of all the things that Jesus did. That's the closest thing we can get to to actually doing it like he did. Unless, of course, you would like to be crucified. No, no, no. I was just asking about church membership. That's cool. Of all the things we can do, we can begin to love people the way Jesus did. We can see them the way he might. We can have compassion for them, not just in our hearts. We can't just read the words out. We have to be doers of the word as well. And if we really want to see people the way God sees them, we need to get active in his word. We need to get active in his body. We need to get active into the ungodly multitude, into the world out there, and tell them about this gift that has come for them. We need to stop acting like entitled slave owners, like we've got the, the get-out-of-hell-free card taken care of. And we need to start saying, listen, I know the way to the promised land. Come with me. Let me show you who this Jesus is. Many years ago, there was a, a man named Roger. He was a raging alcoholic. And for him, rock bottom really was rock bottom. He hit pretty hard, lost his family, lost his job, couldn't work, couldn't function. Roger began going to these AA meetings, these different places at this mission. In the process of that, Roger came to a, a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and, and he actually started working in this place. And every time there was a meeting, there were always drunks or 
or, or, or people with drug addictions, and there was people who were coming in for ministry or whatever. Roger was there, and Roger basically became the custodian. And, and, and Roger, he, he barely said anything. He was a very quiet man, always was. Roger did not even think twice about cleaning up vomit or someone had urinated or taking somebody some clothes or giving them some food, some money out of his own pocket. That's just who Roger was. But nobody ever really became appreciative of who Roger was. One night, all of these drunks were sitting in a room, I imagine probably very similar to this right here, and there was an evangelistic message, and the man was calling to those people, please come, come give your life to Jesus. Give this addiction over to him. Let him take that from you and begin the process of healing and show you who that was. And this, this, this drunken man with tears in his eyes comes weeping down to the very front of the church, and, and he, he gets down on his, on his hands and knees and begins to cry out, oh, God, make me like Roger. And the pastor like, did he not hear the sermon? God, please just help me to be more like Roger. And, of course, the ego of this pastor is just done at this point, right? And he goes down to him, he leans down to him, he goes, hey, maybe you ought to, maybe you ought to ask God to make you more like Jesus. And the guy says, oh, does he know Roger? <laughs> I dare say that in an evaluation of our own usefulness, for God's kingdom, in seeing how others look to God. That man may not have known Jesus, but he saw him in Roger. He saw him every day in his humility and in his love and his mercy and his grace. And through that example, he heard about this guy named Jesus who radically transformed Roger and was in the process of transforming himself. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. I don't know how close you are to God now versus how close you were. I'm not interested in your experiences. What I'm interested in is your everyday relationship with Jesus Christ. That transcends your experiences. I don't know if you've ever had a real relationship with him. I hope that you have, and I hope it's beginning. It may be a young, growing, nurturing. Oh, man, I hope that's the case. Maybe you have known God for a long time and walked with him for a long time, but you just don't feel as close as you used to. And, and some of that... Hey, some of that's just a, a season. Some of that is just getting God's word, being a part of what God is doing and being useful. I don't know how useful you feel for God's kingdom, but let me tell you this. Anybody who tells you that you're not useful for God's kingdom is a liar because God uses everything. He cleans up messes better than Roger could. He fixes things better than any handyman. And he does so with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and 15 is a call for our usefulness, inviting those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. It says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. As the woman lay there weeping, drying the beautiful feet of Jesus Christ, anointing him with perfume, I doubt she realized what she was doing, honoring him in such a way, preparing him for burial, knowing he was going to go to the cross for the sins of all the ungodly multitude, for all the world, for humanity. She got her relationship right with Jesus, and that Pharisee watched it and didn't get it. 
and many of us watch good people do great things and we feel all warm and fuzzy and I think that's great. But I want to invite you into that relationship of usefulness with God's kingdom. It's not a measurement of big or small or how much or how little. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, I could never get up and do what you do. I'm like, please, I hope you could do it better than what I can do. It's not a contest. Well, I could never go to the other side of the planet. Maybe God's not asking you to go to the other side of the planet. In fact, the other side of the planet lives in Katy. Where'd that excuse? It's gone now, right? How will they hear if you don't go tell them? How will they know? How will they believe if you don't show them? How will your beautiful feet take you to the image bearers of God? Some of you are probably far from God today. Some of you are inching closer. And let me tell you something. That's awesome. I think that's really, really good. Some of you are in a place that you don't like to be, or some of you are in a place that you don't know where you're at. That is okay. I would rather somebody be angry and asking God questions and even yelling at him than not talking to him at all. Because at least there's an opportunity for that dialogue. I want to close this morning by telling you a simple story of a man back in the 30s who had a falling out with his father. Don't really know what the issue was, but it was so bad he couldn't come home, and he would write his mother from time to time. She would beg him, come home, come home. Your mom and I, your dad and I are getting older. Come home, come home. And so finally one day he asked, he says, is, is dad ready for me to come home? And she says, I don't know. We've never talked about it. Years had gone by since they had seen one another, since he had been home, seen his mother, seen his dad. And finally one day he says, I'm ready to come home. I'm ready to, to, to come and talk to mom and dad. She says, well, here's what I'll do. I'll tell you what, I'll go talk to your dad. And, and when the train comes into town, if you see a white cloth hanging on the tree right there by the train station, you'll know it's okay to come home. But if there's not a white cloth there, then you just keep on going and know that I love you. And so the young man convinced one of his friends to go with him, and he gets on this train, and he's riding back in there, and he's, he's setting out the window for hours just waiting to see that, that station and that tree there. And finally he says, I can't do this. Switch places with me. Tell me when you see that tree, if there's a, a white cloth hanging up there on that tree. The train comes to a stop, and he's right there at the station, and his buddy's leaning out the window, and he's taking a look, and he's over there. What's the deal, man? Tell me what's happening here. Is there a white cloth hanging on the tree? And so he turns to him, and he says, no. There's about 100 of them. Let's go see your dad. I don't know where you are in your relationship with Jesus Christ. But I can tell you there's a white cloth hanging on the tree asking you to come home. I can tell you that there's usefulness in you. There's worthiness in you. That you are the image bearers of God. And that the ungodly multitude needs the gift of Jesus Christ to be delivered by your beautiful feet. Each and every day in all that you do, whether you're a Roger cleaning up vomit on the floor by a bunch of drunks, whether you're playing in the band, making coffee, being kind to strangers, and reminding them that they bear God's image. There is a place for you in God's kingdom, and there is beauty in the ashes of what you may have of a charred life. And I want to invite you this morning to come home. Come back to a place. Start that journey along the way. Let's pray. Father, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all mankind, that everybody needs him. Lord, you and I had this conversation when I was 17 years old. That 
I beg to not go to ministry. And Father, I remember your relentless pursuit of my life over the next 12 years and the misery of being successful by the world's standards but not being in the right place with you. Lord, I know that you made me special and that I'm unique in my own ways, but I don't think that's a unique story to any of us. God, thank you for this beautiful body. Man, these people are amazing. Thank you for the mosaic of Katy, Texas. Father, thank you for the, the gift to the ungodly multitude of Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask you this morning especially, would you take away shame and fear and anxiety, the, the sense of worthlessness that so many of us feel here and even embrace some days. And would you show us our value and our worth in Jesus Christ? Father, show us why you went to the cross. Make us useful for your kingdom. Whether it be a simple act of kindness, Lord, whether it be the presentation of the gospel, the good news for all mankind that salvation is available. Father, we love you and we just thank you for Jesus and ask these things in his name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. We're going to sing one more song. It's rare for me that I would extend an invitation, not just pre-COVID. I think we're in a little different world than what I grew up in, many of you grew up in too, but I'll tell you something. I'm inspired by Roger coming to the foot of the cross. I want to invite you this morning, if it's time to make a decision to follow Jesus for the first time or to get back into a relationship with him, either come down and talk to me this morning or you call me and reach out to me. I'd love to have that conversation with you. There is no greater conversation than seeing people come to a relationship in Jesus Christ. There's rejoicing in heaven over one who returns. Let's sing together. give life you are love you bring light to the darkness you give hope you restore every heart that is broken and great are you Lord it's your in our lungs so we pour out our praise we pour out our praise it's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise to you only you give life you are love, you bring life to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken, and 
are the feet of those who bring the good news. That's both encouraging and convicting, isn't it? How beautiful are the feet, the smelly, dirty, calloused feet of those who bring the good news of the gospel. You are the pinnacle of creation. May the Lord bless you and keep you Make his face to shine upon you and be gracious. God bless you. Have a great rest of your day.